Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Well, I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live, after all. Working at Lincoln Center, it sounds very huge and elevated. And that's what it feels like, like once you're working there. Because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook musical theater. People are becoming more and more comfortable with, you know, issues of people being different. I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we don't we don't back away from anything. Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 403 for March 4th, 2010. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we've got a great episode for you. You're going to hear James Barber's new charity single, Walk With Me. We've also got West End star Claire Burt here to talk about her uh, new one-woman cabaret, her debut in New York City. We've got Plus 30 NYC. We have got the new uh, World War II musical, Signs of Life. You're going to hear about the new play, Hangman School for Girls, and Frank Blocker is back to talk about his new one-person one monologue show, Fearless Moral Inventory, and Marty Cooper is here to talk about the glut of stars parading on the Great White Way this season competing for Tonys. So it's a great jam-packed episode. We're going to kick it off right away here with uh, the James Barber's new single, Walk With Me. I produced this uh, for him, and it was written by Gary Burton. It is for Haiti Relief. You can pick it up at Amazon or iTunes. All proceeds will go to Haiti, so by all means, stop by and pick it up. It's really cheap, just one song, and tell all your friends about it. In the meantime, here is Walk With Me from James Barber. To cross the ocean First build a boat To write a novel First make a note When you know that the sun and the sky and the wind are free Walk with me To build a temple First turn a stone To treasure good friends First live alone When you know that they have the child in your heart can see Walk with me Don't go living in shadows Looking through tears Never hear the ones who disbelieve you Troubled by fear Follow your own direction On words driven by faith And if you fall seven times a stranger Think of those you've known When you find everything in your conscience as it should be Walk with me Don't go living in shadows Looking through tears Never hear the ones who disbelieve you Troubled by fears 
Again, that was James Barber with Walk With Me for Haiti Relief. Pick that up at Amazon or iTunes. Up close. Claire Burt is a star of the West End theater scene, uh, performing in way too many things to list everything, but including Passions, Into the Woods, and Nine, among many others. And she is making her New York debut with her cabaret show, Now You Know. And uh, that is running from March 9th through the 13th. And we are so lucky to have Claire here in the studio to talk about her career, about her show, and about her brand new CD that's about to be released. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm, I'm lucky to be here. I'm loving it. I love New York. Now, when did you get here? Uh, a couple of days ago, I think. I'm so. So you are really lucky to be here because you almost couldn't land, huh? Yeah, because the snow thing. <laughs> God, I brought maybe four coats with me, and today it feels like t-shirt weather. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, spring is here. I'm here, and all is all is good. And I'm I'm so excited to be uh, doing the Metropolitan Room. It's it's been a dream since I don't know I was five <laughs> I really I used to walk around um, the streets where I lived uh, talking with a New York accent uh, in a rather pathetic way <laughs> and I didn't stop till I was about 15 <laughs> well so well, first things first tell us a little about about the cabaret show that's going to be a New Yorker's first taste of you on these shores well, um, it's a show that originated out of town um, in England. We, I was asked to do my one-woman show, um, which at that point didn't exist. And I got together my friends, Nigel Lilly, who is an MD extraordinaire in England. In fact, he's responsible for um, Le Cage au Folle that's just transferring and... 
uh, he's doing he's doing Sweet Charity in town at the moment in London. Um, he got together with myself and Matt Ryan, a great director in London, and we kind of sat around and had the best fun working out what songs we all uh, responded to immediately, and we had vast lists. Um, and so we did the show out of town, and it went incredibly well. I mean, just just better than I'd ever imagined. Um, and so we then were asked to do the show at Pizza on the Park in London, which again was a dream come true. You know, I've, I've seen Julie Wilson, Blossom Deary, everybody there. And uh, so, so I went and did the show there and got great reviews and... I don't know, it was it was incredible because we did the show so out of love and we featured all the composers that we adore, Stephen Sondheim, Adam Gettle, uh, to H Harry Nielsen, and um, we just ran the gamut. And so we never, we never thought about reviews or whether people would love it. We just wanted to do what we loved. And it's resulted in us being here a year and a half later. And... Um, it's an extraordinary feeling, and, you know, I don't care if I don't work again. This this will suit me. I'll go to my grave happy. <laughs> <laughs> so where is the show playing here? The Metropolitan Room in Chelsea. So uh, were there a lot of negotiations and things having to happen to make this work for you to come across the pond? And uh, Well, I don't know, because yeah. my producer guy dealt with all of that. I just said, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fine with me. I'll put the kids in a cupboard and I'll come over. <laughs> no, their father's looking after them in England, and uh, they're, they're, they're six and ten, and they are slightly um, uh, miffed that they're not here too. But, um, but, you know, school calls. And, hey, I wanted to run around pretending I was somebody else for a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, I understand you've also got a CD that's about to be released. I do, yeah. It's my first solo CD. I've done tons of recordings before, cast albums and compilation albums and stuff. But this is, this is a solo one. And, uh, and it's, it's, just, it's a live recording from Pizza in the Park. So you hear knives and forks and uh, glasses and things. And it's... Um, it, it, Did the producer run around going, no, 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 the glasses aren't clinking in time. <laughs> <laughs> that was the least of his problems. <laughs> no, it was, it's good. I think, it's, uh, I think it captures what the show is about, which is, um, well, therein lies a, a huge uh, discussion. <laughs> but it's, it's about um, universal feelings that seem so, um, they seem to isolate people. Uh, and yet we all feel the same at the end of the day to lesser or greater degrees. And there's story songs, they're uplifting, sort of depressing and a laugh. You know, they cover, they run the gamut and they're grown up songs. And um, it's, it's interesting because other than kind of a couple of uh, numbers whereby we take a trip to Europe, the rest are all by American composers and... Um, you know that it's that you guys write the best stuff. <laughs> it's exciting and and uh, sophisticated and uh, just it it does it for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, maybe we should play one of the songs here from your upcoming CD. Um, this, I believe, is a melody of "It Only Happens When I Dance with You," uh, music that makes me dance. Oh, it's a medley. It's called that we call it the dance medley. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's it's got gorgeous arrangements by Nigel Lilly and Matt Ryan and.
Um, yeah, go ahead, play. All right, let's take a listen. <laughs> Ask her to sit this one out, and while she's alone, I'll ask the waiter to tell her she's wanted on the telephone. Lovely, with your smile so warm, and your cheek so soft. There is nothing for me but to love you. And the way you look tonight. Oh, but you're.
get two and two, the most simple addition, then swear that the figures are lying. I'm a much better comic than mathematician, cause I'm better on stage than at intermission. And as far as the man is concerned, if I've been burned, I haven't learned. So the CD, is this going to be released in American shores? Do you know? Is there... uh, It's going to be on iTunes. I know that <laughs> much. I'm so um, uh, behind with all the technical knowledge of things. You know, I just leave that to other people. I literally get pushed on stage, do it, and come off. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know how all of that works. It's all new to me, even though I'm not 20 anymore. I should know how it works. I just don't. <laughs> <laughs> Well, now, to switch gears a little bit, you've had a, a very illustrious career in the, the West End. Uh-huh. And so I'm thinking maybe you can enlighten you know, some of us Yanks as to <laughs> the, the West End theater scene. Well, um, yeah, it's funny. I was thinking that yesterday. I was wondering if it was the same um, in terms of when in the, in the, I guess it was the 80s when Les Mis happened, 
um, and the big kind of we called them those of us who did them called them the factory musicals happened um in fact those of us who did things like les mis called it les mortgages um <laughs> and it was a funny scene whereby all the same people went for the same jobs and we just did each show uh we did the rounds basically and we kind of all the cast it was interchangeable um and then it changed again it changed back to suddenly everybody wanted to work at the donmar warehouse where small intimate productions were happening with really exciting directors like Sam Mendes and like David Laveau and John Crowley um all of whom I know work here often um and I was lucky and I jumped ship pretty pretty much straight away into a Sam Mendes production at the Donmar warehouse um and I think it's different in in terms of the English casts don't seem as proud to be in the back row of the chorus as the uh, New York casts would be i remember seeing ragtime here a while back and everybody absolutely everybody worked like i have never seen before and it just you know there's a sense of i might be spotted even though i'm behind five other people and i never really get the sense of that in England whenever I've been working things. The guy in the back row picking his nose during... Sort of, <laughs> sort of, trying to make those others of us laugh, you know. It's, it's, you do have, I mean, God, I had fun. I've had fun doing all of it. Um, but I, I would have loved to have done shows here. I mean, I, this is really what made my heart beat. And I used to watch the Tonys uh, year after year and... Um, I, I it's just you know the Tony Awards you had Liza and Cheetah getting up there and doing numbers and tributes to Sondheim who lived around the corner from where the Tonys were being filmed and it was just an exciting world that I wanted to be part of. Well I, I do know especially recently over in the West End that there have been a lot of American stars willing to like go appear over there that yeah. don't want to appear on stage here and It's funny isn't it? <laughs> it, it well, why, why would that be? Why, the grass why? is greener. <laughs> Well, the Americans go over to do the plays, don't they? Yeah, that's what I've been hearing a lot about recently. Yeah, and they don't necessarily go over to do the musicals. Some have, um, but it's not. It's it's predominantly the plays. Do they they figure the spotlight glare isn't as heavy on them there doing live theater, or? I just don't know. I think because we have Shakespeare, that kind of makes our straight theater. Very, very legitimate, even though you have Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams, you know, <laughs> to name but two. Um, and I think... And now movie adaptations. Yeah. I hear is a big trend over in the West End for plays. Yes, it is. Of course <laughs> it is. Yeah. Um, y- you know, it's strange. I, I had kids uh, ten years ago is when I started, and seven years ago I moved to France deliberately to kind of remove myself from the theatre world because... I wanted to concentrate on something else. And you live in London or, I'm presuming, New York. It's all around you. You cannot um, avoid it. And so I don't really know what's gone on over the last eight years. I do know there's mu- uh, movie adaptations happening mm-hmm. all the time. And they um, and we've got the jukebox musicals, uh, jukebox musicals happening as well, you know, with all the... Uh, we Will Rock You, which obviously <laughs> originated here, but then it spawned 500 other... Uh, band shows. Um, 
But yeah, I, I mean, I think I think pr- it's probably a case of Broadway comes up and London goes down, and then it, the, the the scales go the other way. I think you know it's exciting here at points and exciting there at points. Um, I just know I I kind of get the buzz here. <laughs> I, I'm just probably a bit over London, you know. I've done it for long enough. <laughs> Is it because we have hot water here? <laughs> we, I just interviewed another Londoner who was, who was talking about how that she loves that there's a hot water all the time and it just works. It's fantastic. It's absolutely <laughs> true. <laughs> so that, that'll be the title of this show is New York is Hot Water. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Before we continue, maybe we can play another song here from your CD. Mm. Uh, do you want to talk about this one a little bit? Yeah, what is it? Oh, The Saga of Jenny. Oh, of course, yeah. This, um, well, it, it kind of speaks for itself, really. It's a great story song. It's it's funny, sophisticated. It's a great arrangement, again, by Nigel Lilly and Matt Ryan. And um, it's uh, it's a blast. So, so go ahead, play it. <laughs> All right, let's take a listen. There once was a girl named Jenny Whose virtues were varied and many Excepting that she was inclined Always to make up her mind Now Jenny points a moral with which you cannot quarrel as you will find. (laughs) Jenny made her mind up when she was three that she herself was going to trim the Christmas tree. Christmas Eve she lit the candles, tossed the tapers away. Little Jenny was an orphan on Christmas Day. Oh, 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 poor Jenny, bright as a penny. Her equal would be hard to find. She lost her dad, her mother, her sister, her brother, but she would make up her mind. Jenny made her mind up when she was 12 that into foreign languages she would delve. But at 17 to Vassar she was quite a blow when in 27 languages she couldn't say no. Oh, 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 poor Jenny, bright as a penny. Her equal would be hard to find. To Jenny I'm beholden, her heart was big and golden, but she would make up her mind. Jenny made her mind up at 22. To get herself a husband was the thing to do. She got herself all dolled up in her satins and furs. And she got herself a husband, but he wasn't hers. Ho, 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 Jenny made her mind up at 29. That she would take a trip to the Argentine. She was only on vacation, but the Latins agreed that Jenny was the one who started the good neighbor policy. Ho, 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 poor Jenny, bright as a penny. Her equal would be hard to find. Oh, passion doesn't vanish, and Portuguese or Spanish, but she would make Jenny made her mind up at 51 That she would write her memoirs before she was done The very day the book was published History relates that there were wives who shot their husbands in some 39 states Oh, poor Jenny, bright, bright as a penny Her equal would be hard to find She would give cards and spades to many other ladies But she would make 
Jenny made her mind up at 75 that she would live to be the oldest woman alive. The gin and rum and destiny played funny tricks. Little Jenny kicked the bucket at 76. Jenny points a moral with which you cannot quarrel, makes a lot of common sense. Jenny and her saga prove that you are gaga if you don't keep sitting on the comes to this decision you don't make up you should make up oh never make up you mustn't make up for anyone with vision comes to this decision don't make up your mind your mind Don Richardson. <laughs> All right, well, that was great here. Good, uh, we, and I didn't mention before, actually, it's from Lady in the Dark, uh, which is a great show. Well, by Kurt Vile. Right? Yeah, yeah, by <laughs> Kurt Vile. So now, again, the, the cabaret show Now You Know is going on March 9th uh, through the 13th. And, uh, and the website you know, for people to go for more information, they can click on a link at www.claire-bert.com. That's the one. And that's C-L-A-R-E. Yeah. Dash Bert. B-U-R-T. So what's, what's in the pipeline? Do you have anything in the pipeline for after you finish with this? Um, and you're heading to L.A. with this too, correct? Uh, well. I said that on your website. It did say that because we were going to. We've had second thoughts about it because of. it's L.A. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, um, but we, all that sun for you guys. <laughs> we might um, a muscle beach just puts me off, <laughs> but we might uh, we might head to San Francisco. It kind of depends on everybody's availability. Um, you know, there's stuff in the pipeline for me, and there's stuff in the pipeline for the musical director. He's got a transfer that's happening pretty much straight away as soon as we get back to London. Um, in, in three weeks' time. So we don't really know. I mean, I do... My career continues besides doing this one-woman sh- one woman show. Uh, but I have to say, it spoils you doing this kind of work because you have your pick of every single show that you've ever wanted to be part of. You just do all the best numbers <laughs> from them and you don't have to worry about anything else. So I might... Um, my, my guy's an actor and he works a lot at the moment and... It's good that one of us stays home. <laughs> so I might just hang out with my kids for a while and work on the next One Woman show. We will change it after this trip to New York and possibly San Francisco. We'll start working on the second one. Mm-hmm. I might do that. So uh, production-wise, you've worked with you know so many people and done so many shows. Is yeah. there anybody you haven't worked with yet that you're dying to work with that you want to maybe put out you know into the ether there? Uh, <laughs> do you know what? No, I've worked with them, the ones I wanted to. I worked with Stephen Sondheim, who of course is a genius. I worked many moons ago with William Finn, who um, overheard me saying to a friend on the phone, uh, "I haven't got money. I can't come out tonight." And he said, "Do you want to borrow a fiver?" <laughs> I was thrilled. It was Bill Finn. Um, and I've worked with Sam Mendes and Trevor Nunn and, you know, Harold Prince. Yeah, Hal Prince. Okay. 
Yeah. So now it's out there. Claire yeah. Burt would like to work with Hal Prince. Absolutely. Uh, and, of course, John Kander and, uh, you know, the, oh, gosh, now you started me. <laughs> How long do we have? I, I love Adam Gettle, but Michael Donald Cusa. You know, it could go on and on and on. But, yeah, they're, they're generally this side of the water. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, you dipped your toes over here now. And, yeah. uh, again, so hopefully everybody can get to see your show. Now you know. Yeah, and, come see it. And Claire Bird, thank you so much for stopping by the studio here to chat thank while you. you're here. And it best, was great fun. Best of luck with everything. Thank you. On the boards. What will New York be like in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? Uh, that is a lot of the questions that's being asked by Plus 30 NYC, the new uh, collection of seven short plays being presented at the Red Fern Theatre Company. We have got Melanie Moyer-Williams, who's the Executive Artistic Director and one of the directors for the project here with us, as well as Dominic D'Andrea, who is the curator for this exciting production. How are you guys doing? Just yeah. great. Thanks for having us. And Thanks I should so add, much. this is opening uh, the 4th and runs through the 21st, which we'll get to all the more of the information at the end. But uh, I guess really quick, tell us kind of in a nutshell, what is Plus 30 NYC? <laughs> wow. But Plus 30 NYC um, is was born out of the, the company's needs to sort of explore uh, what the environmental issues or what the possible effects of our actions are here in New York City will be in the future. There's no actions. There's 8 million people on yeah. the island and you don't need to worry about it. Right? <laughs> totally, yeah. <laughs> so they wanted to do an environmental project and they also wanted to include playwrights this year. So Melanie reached out to me and asked how would we do that. So we asked, um, I asked uh, six writers that I know really well and one writer that um, Redfern is cultivating uh, to come and make works for us, imagining what, sort of like looking at our reality now and imagining what the future could possibly be around sort of the periphery of social environmental uh, issues here in the city. And they, the renderings that came back to us were very, very different and very exciting. Um, so we have like this sort of evening that's linked by a design concept that sort of presents seven really vastly different ideas of what the future looks like and it's kind of exciting and provocative and we think it's going to be really really good so you said that uh, melanie you, you said that you kind of approached about curing this what what was your desire or did you have an, this idea in your mind or did you kind of boil it up together or? well i think dominic and i had many lunches together trying to figure out what um what we wanted to do but the the idea really came from we're trying to focus our efforts on new works and really wanted to find a way to meet a lot of new playwrights and knew that dominic could tap into that um, group of people for us and we've tackled a lot of issues over the last four seasons and but one of them we haven't and one that i wanted to was were environmental issues and you don't get a lot of plays about that so we thought what what a, what a better time to meet new playwrights and to commission plays based on those issues. So you, you mentioned Dominic knew a lot of playwrights. How, how do you happen to know like so many playwrights that you just you know, well, um, people? And... I've, I've been involved as a director at many play development centers in the United States for most of my career. I've been uh, sort of a core director at the Lark Play Development Center for the last five seasons, which is like for me, like the most important play development center in the United States. Um, and I also curate this thing called the New York One Minute Play Festival, which every year for the last four years, we've I've commissioned um, 45 to 50 writers to make about 90, 60 second plays that we've presented in Wouldn't Epic Wouldn't that be called a commercial? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. It's epic. It's epic. It's amazing. So, and so many playwrights say it's so much harder to write 
a one-minute play or even like the 10 to 20-minute plays that we're showing or producing on Thursday. Yeah. So that's how we, I mean, I just know I'm in the community of writers, so, you know, and they like to do multi-writer events and they like to be challenged and asked for specific requests and things. So it was, it was a fun way to do it. And pretty much everyone we asked said yes right away. They were like, yes, this sounds awesome. And um, the idea that we're looking at what New York could possibly be like actually, actually imagining um, the future was a sort of an incentive for them because I think all of these writers are writing in a way that they don't normally write. So it, there was an incentive to kind of up the ante for them, which made it a little bit more interesting. So I'm kind of curious. I always interested as you're pursuing. Um, what are your day jobs as well? Is this for your full time gigs, or do you? Uh, how do you balance your day jobs with? Your... <laughs> wow. I feel like Redfern is more than a, a full-time <laughs> job for me. Dominic and I live off of very little sleep. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Now, I actually uh, do play development and work as a director, and I also support myself by doing freelance uh, financial work. I'm a consultant for an investment bank um, and consult for various theater companies. And how often do you tell the investment bank that the theater company is a great investment? Well, I'm here right now <laughs> to go invest in this podcast. Long just to be on the clock. So I think it's impossible for them not to cross over. And, yeah. and I uh, recruit for uh, some legal work, and uh, they always come to see the work as well. So it's it's always interesting how um, how your your day job that can help you support do what and do what you really love and want to um, to do it at night. <laughs> can cross over. Now, what have been the biggest challenges putting together this, you know, seven short plays by different authors? I imagine there's t different technical needs in the songs. Or did you lay that out beforehand? Or We tried really hard. Um, I think what we tried to do was organize it in a way that was meaningful and useful for our artists to work. Um, the challenge of this particular project was working with a design team in place before the plays were actually written. So you had <laughs> to tell the playwrights, you get six boxes. <laughs> <laughs> sort of. I mean, it's, the idea is that the design team really wanted to create a way to create a high aesthetic environment, but also serve the needs of each play. So they decided that they wanted to focus on creating a floor pattern that every single play um, will kind of have its own furniture, and over the course of the evening, after every play is done, they kind of discard their furniture into this pile, and as the evening progresses, this pile becomes larger and larger and more sculptural, and it's kind of lit in interesting ways and stuff. So the, the sort of like ritualistically, it's the idea that the actors are, are literally setting their pieces and creating their world, and at the end of their time, they're taking it away and adding it to the pile. So at the end of the night, we're seeing the accumulation of everything we're dealing with on stage. It never leaves us. So it's really kind of cool. Yeah, and each play has a few specific props that end up also in the sculpture. So you see all of the different integral parts from over the evening. And I think the designers, it was a challenge for them to think of theater in a green way, and one that a lot of them had wanted to try to implement and start working with especially trying to use a lot of uh, um, practicals in the lighting um, and also That's thinking really about doing <clears throat> and th thinking about using all found objects or borrowing them um, and then how, how do we deal with that afterwards. And I think that our set designer's amazing idea of discarding all of the set on the stage so that you can see at the end of the night how theater does create a lot of waste and how seven different plays create this huge mass of 
of of garbage, if if you will, that would go into a landfill after a show, and hopefully don't, don't let a critic get a hold of that. <laughs> no, this stuff is not garbage. What it would be, it would be garbage after the end of after the end of the uh, the production if we were to just discard it. Um, but we are we will be recycling it to other theater companies and giving um, stuff back to materials for the arts. But I think that it was a it, initially it was a huge challenge, and then it became a very exciting one. Um, and it became very exciting when we found very perfect pieces for each of the shows. The set designer would come in and say, I found it, I found it. <laughs> yeah, working in a way where you literally, the job is literally to go out into the world and find things and then report back to the directors and the playwrights. It's like, I found this, how can we use this? It's really challenging. I mean, but exciting. A, it's exciting, but I mean, it's like it's like an, a, a giant puzzle that you're trying to make the pieces fit in a way that you never imagined. I've never worked this way before. Yeah, normally a director would say, "I need you know X, Y, and Z to make the show happen," and the set designer is like, "Well, I have X and sort of this for Y, but what about this for Z?" And um, it it creates a challenge both for the directors and the actors to see how you can make that work, um, and I think it makes the plays all that much better. So casting-wise, do you have a, is this a core cast that does all seven shows, or is it a different cast each show, or a, a little mix? Or? I think the, the casting, what we did with traditional EPAs, which you do for equity showcase production, so we held, Melanie held three days of EPAs and saw a bunch of actors, and we sort of cast the mix of EPAs and actors that are connected to the playwrights and the directors in the community, because at core, this is a community event with, you know, some of the most exciting artists in the city. Um, and we were really thrilled. I mean, some of the best writers and directors and actors came to play um, because I know that for the actors, the incident was we have these, this is the evening and this is our idea and this is who's involved and everyone just signed up immediately and said yes. So the casting wasn't as challenging as... As we thought it might have been. <laughs> thought it might have been. <laughs> And we got really great people. Yeah. And I think it's another way for all of us to meet new people as well. I'm directing two of the pieces, and one of them I've worked with both of the actors and love them, uh, love their work and love working with them a lot. My other piece, the playwright suggested people that he um, had in mind when he wrote the piece and uh, loved working with them. And as a result, I'm working with three amazing new actors that I hope to work with again in the future. Now, I understand that this is for a charity as well and promoting green awareness. Just out of curiosity, is that where the Red Fern Theater Company name comes from at all, or is that no, just coincidence? <laughs> it's not. It, it is sort of a coincidence, <laughs> I guess. And our, and our new thing has been it's, it's uh, Red Fern is going green. <laughs> but um, we uh, partnered... Well, I think of where the Red Fern grows, which is a big, e kind of... It had a big ecological state. Yeah, yeah well, so a would... lot of people think that, but actually the first play that we had wanted to do is called uh, Candles to the Sun. It's one of Tennessee Williams' first plays, and we had wanted to produce it about four years ago, and unfortunately, um, his estate doesn't allow anything to be done in New York, with the exception of Broadway. Um, but two of the very instrumental characters in the play are Red and Fern, and so it, it is how kind of the company came to be, and uh, how, it, how it got the original group of people together. And then we thought they were very two strong people, and put them together and had the title for the show. I had no idea that's how the title yeah. came to be. Wow. <laughs> Red, Red is a uh, uh, the show is about coal mining in Alabama, and Red is a uh, uh, a guy who tries to unionize the workers, and Fern is a, a woman who saves all of her money to send her son to college uh, to get him out of the mining uh, group camp. So, can I just wrap up? So, so tell us about the the charity benefactor and and, what, and some of the awareness you're trying to raise. Okay. 
materials for the arts. They're an amazing, amazing. Yes, I have group. read about them. They are. They they collect um, what would otherwise be garbage from corporations, from other theaters, from, from films, from offices, from anybody, and you they put it all in this huge warehouse, and you can go and find notebook paper. You can go and find a huge. The last time I was there, there were these like six foot. Uh, snowflakes that lit up and then there was this like Godzilla sculpture and you know this huge fluorescent light and tables and chairs and it's it's a wonderful organization that nonprofit arts organizations get to go and shop for free <laughs> for free and then return the materials when they're done and they also do like a website thing mm -hmm. where you can search by like what your needs are online and see if it's available to pick up yeah so bigger donations like people who have pianos for example that they want to give away it's called direct donations and you go on I'm looking for a piano and four or five people are looking to get rid of one and so you contact them and it's really get... easy to get a piano yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you want a free one <laughs> <laughs> well free for a piano in New York is deceptive because moving it alone yeah, yeah, is <laughs> Dollars, right? That's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Plus 30 NYC runs from the 4th of March the 21st. Um, where Where is this playing? At Center Stage, which is at 48 West 21st Street between 5th and 6th Avenues. And is there a website people can go to get more information on this project? Absolutely. It's Red Fern Theater, spelled with an R-E, dot org. All right. Well, it sounds like a lot of fun, and it sounds like it, where your work cut out for you, <laughs> Taylor. <laughs> um, Melanie Moyer-Williams and Dominic Nandrea, thanks so much for stopping by, and best Thank of luck. You. Thank you. On the boards. The Jewish artist ghetto in Terezin during World War II is the subject matter of a new musical, Signs of Life, being presented by a Moss Musical Theater through March 21st. And we have one of the talented leads here to talk with us about the show, Patricia Noonan. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. So uh, how does it feel to have your uh, picture in the New York Times this morning? Oh, it was pretty great. It was great <laughs> to see an, an article about uh, the show and a couple other shows dealing with some more difficult subject matter. It's really interesting. <laughs> well, I guess to start everything off, first off, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Signs of Life. What is the show about? Well, as you said, it's about the, um, the ghetto Terezin during World War II where the Nazis put a number of prominent Jewish artists, actors, musicians, professors, people kind of Europe would notice were missing. And they kind of forced them to use their art as a form of propaganda, and they set it up as a model ghetto to show the Red Cross and to show the world, look how great we're treating the Jewish people. And whether or not the Red Cross were fooled or not when they came to visit, they didn't say anything. And um, But these artists were also able to use their art as a form of resistance to tell the truth. And there's a lot of artwork that still exists today that people created in the ghetto that you know, showed what was really going on and what the Nazis were really doing to them. So our story kind of deals with some individuals who are based on some true people but are mostly fictionalized and how they deal with using their art as propaganda but also using it to tell the truth. So, so how do they get this down to a personal story? What are, what are some of the characters in it? Well, I've, I play the character of Lorelai, and Lorelai's a young girl. I'm 19, and... I'm a university student in Prague, kind of. I have every opportunity in front of me, and I end up with my family and a couple of other people associated with us in this ghetto. And at first, I kind of think, if I play by the rules that they've set out, if I paint the pictures they want me to, these pretty pictures of what's going on here, then I'll be safe, and my family will be safe. And, gr and pretty soon, I learned that there really are no rules. The rules change all the time. There is no safety. And, um, and I 
kind of grow up and realize that I need to tell the truth and I need to um, kind of retain what I can of my humanity and my identity as an artist through telling the truth and start secretly drawing pictures of what's really going on and trying to find ways to smuggle them out or show the Red Cross and eventually, um, with the other characters, risk all of our lives, some of us losing our lives, to tell the truth. And um, so some of the other characters are uh, my grandfather, who is, um, his name is Jacob, and he is, uh, becomes one of the Jewish Council of Elder members in the ghetto, which was a self-governing committee that the Nazis set up. And he's put in some very, very morally and emotionally difficult positions because he has to decide, you know, who's going to eat, who's going to stay in the ghetto. And you kind of watch him deal with that. And then you have um, Kurt Gerard, who is a cabaret singer who is, you know, very famous in Prague and throughout Europe. And, and you know, he's kind of this savant and, you know, almost like a Brad Pitt or something. And then you see what all of a sudden, you know, he goes from being famous to being in a ghetto and not having food and seeing how he deals with that and the transformation he goes through. And then you have um, Simon, who is uh, this philosopher who is pretty enamored with Lorelai, my character, and you see how our relationship develops. And um, I don't want to leave anyone out because they're all so interesting. <laughs> but there's Berta, this woman that... Um, who is actually a converted Christian, but her husband is a Nazi party member, so ships her off to Terezin because he doesn't want to be associated with it, uh, anyone that has Jewish blood. And you kind of see what she goes through, um, caring for Polish, young Polish children who are sent to her to make well. Um, and then there's also the Nazi characters and my little brother, Wolfie. <laughs> <laughs> so who are the writers for the show? Um, the writers are uh, Peter Yulian, he wrote the book, uh, Len Schiff, who wrote the lyrics, and Joel Durfner wrote the music. So have, have, have you had a chance to work with them closely during the process? Is oh, the yes. Um, they were great. They were uh, at a lot of our rehearsals. They, you know, listened to our input. They asked us questions. We were doing, I mean, they were doing rewrites throughout the process, so they were definitely very involved, and they've been at a lot of the performances, so... We've yeah, well, to work with them a lot. Well, before we continue, maybe we can play one of the songs from... Uh, this is a demo that they, they did for the show, so this isn't you singing mm -hmm. on here, those, those pesky equity rules. Um, do you want to set up this first song we're going to play here? Signs of Life? Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, Signs of Life uh, comes early in the show, and it's my character Lorelai and uh, Simon singing and um, kind of showing our different points of view at this point about what art should be and what we should be doing in this ghetto. And, um, you know, one of us thinks that we should be fighting back more and one of us thinks we should be playing by the rules and playing it safe. <laughs> All right, let's take a listen.
dialectically, uh, not in the Marxist sense, uh, nor in the Heideggerian sense, nor strictly speaking in the dialectical sense. Um, what I mean to say is, I guess that you've got me your fairy tale stories beat facts every time. It's fine, but it's not me. I want my eyes clear when I witness a crime.
So your, yourself, Patricia, how, what have you been doing here in the New York, New York scene acting wise? Well, um, I moved here after graduating from Boston College and I was lucky enough to work at the uh, sadly no longer existent White Plains Performing Arts mm -hmm. Center for a season doing a number of shows there. Uh, I went, I got to work at the Guthrie where I was part of the original cast of Little House on the Prairie and I spent last summer in the Berkshires doing Carousel and I did uh, Girl Crazy at Encores this past uh, in November and then I did um, Hurricane as part of the Nymph Festival this fall as well and I've done a number of other readings and workshops in the city. Well, so you've been keeping pretty busy coming yeah, out, of, out yeah. of college. Any any techniques you want to share? I mean, has it been straight up luck or do you have like a strategy? You know, is it straight up just auditions or how do you how do you work and keep, you know, so busy right away? I think it's it's a mixture of different things. I think definitely the idea that work breeds more work because I mean, some of it have, has definitely been just, you know, EPAs or appointment auditions, but a lot of it is oh, I saw you do this, come do this, or, you know, recommendations. So I've just been really lucky in that regard. So I think I don't really have much of a strategy, <laughs> just working hard and learning as much as I can. And has there been a favorite part of the process for this show at all, Do you getting this ready? Oh, I think, I mean, I've just loved this process so much. And um, I think one of my favorite parts has just been working with the other actors and the creative team because... Everyone is just very giving and talented and, you know, it's it's difficult subject matter, so it's really wonderful to have a group of people that you really feel you can trust and are present there with you. And it's been an honor to tell this story. And I think, um, especially on the weekends, we have talkbacks with um, some Holocaust survivors, a number of whom were at Terezin or had relatives at Terezin, and to get to meet them and listen to their stories and to have them thank us for telling this story has been an amazing experience. So I think that would be the highlight. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right, well, let's play another song here from the, okay. the demo for the show. Do you want to tell us about this one here? Yes, uh, this is called Another Picture, and um, this is when my character Lorelai decides um, that she can't just keep blindly participating in the propaganda effort, and she needs to use her art to tell the truth of what's going on in Terezin. All right, take a listen.
All right. So uh, Signs of Life is running from uh, February 16th. So it's already open through March 21st. Uh, do you know, is there a website that a Moss Musical? What? A Moss Musical. A Moss Musical.com. And uh, so people can check it out. Mo- a Moss Musical.com. So that's a very tentative. Got the, <laughs> the press guys <laughs> sitting here. And um, any parting shots you want to get out about the show? I, I guess I just want to say that it's, you know, people hear the, hear the words Holocaust musical and they kind of shy away from it. But I think that what I love about this piece is that they took a very epic, painful story and the writers focused on individuals and they were able to show what, you know, individuals put in these dire circumstances, you know, what they would do and, and, and how they fight to retain their humanity, whether it's by still falling in love or still, you know, trying to maintain family connections or by retaining their identity as artists. And I think that's what's really amazing about the project. So I hope you can get past mm-hmm. your qualms and come see it. All right. Well, Patricia Noonan, thanks so much for stopping by this morning. Thank and you. best of luck with the rest of the run and everything you got coming up. Talk to you later. Okay. On the boards. Do you ever feel like you didn't fit in at school? Uh, are you in trance with the British? Do you want to, like, start your career playing a desk? If so, <laughs> should check out Hangman School for Girls, which is playing March 10th through the 27th with Full Stop Collective and Vagabond Theatre Ensemble. We have got writer and actor Lucy Gillespie here, as well as director Lita Tremblay to talk to us about Hangman School for Girls. How are you two doing? Hi. Good. How are you? Great. Good. You want to introduce yourselves and you know, say your name so people can connect the voice with the uh, name? Uh, I'm Lita. I'm the director of Hangman School for Girls and a member of Full Stop Collective. I am Lucy Gillespie, and I wrote the play and am acting in the play under the part of Hazel. All right. So first things first, what is Hangman School for Girls? Well, it is a play... Uh, Not a film or a radio piece. It is a play, and it is about a group of 11 to 14-year-old schoolgirls who uh, um, start school, I guess, 1996 is the year we're pinning it down to. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, um, they're very fast-moving, game-playing, vivacious bunch of girls, uh, but one of them does not get along with the rest and has a lot of trouble fitting in. So to uh, make up for that, she... Uh, invents this invisible friend, I guess, this this component of her imagination that extends kind of like a Philip Pullman demon um, <laughs> for herself who is uh, embodied by her desk. And so we have the, the one man in the play who is the desk. Um, and then as she grows older and kind of starts to go through puberty, this becomes more of a, uh, um, more of a romantic relationship. And then... Um, and then as she then grows older, it, it, it kind of uh, implodes and breaks apart as she realizes that that is not a good way to approach the world. Uh, so that's Right. That's Death what it's kind about. of grows with her and their relationship changes as she grows up. He sort of becomes whatever she, she needs him to be yeah. at any time. Yeah. So how was that casting call wise? We need a male to play a desk. 
<laughs> no, it sounds like a very interesting role. <laughs> but on the surface, it's like I got my start playing a desk. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, it's, I guess, I mean, it's up there with God and Jesus, right? <laughs> uh, it was actually interesting. Uh, a lot of the casting ended up being not so much internal, but um, we found out, we found people through, you know, people involved with the company or friends of ours who we spoke to. So we interviewed um, a few people, but they all ended up being sort of friends of friends or acquaintances, and we found people in that way rather than having a big casting call. Desk was tricky, though, because we we really wanted somebody with a good movement background. Um, The stage directions for Desk, when I was writing it, I hadn't had a... I hadn't had a play produced, and I also didn't want to... I was very aware of people who wrote for staging, and I didn't want to do that at all. I wanted to write something just completely fantastical and have a director go to town. Um, so I, I would write, the desk opens his cavern like a pelican's beak, and it, it was absolutely as though a desk had just come to life, and we didn't want to go with a puppet. Right. Because um, that would have felt really it's, weird. It essentially wrote impossible theater. Yes, exactly. So uh, we wanted to go with somebody who had a lot of movement background and could come with a concept. And so we... Um, as well as being a strong, you know, having a strong actor base as yes. far as creating a character and not losing that in, you know, a bunch of dance. Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and so... And then one of our cast members... Um, and a board member of the Vagabond Theatre Ensemble, actually the managing producer of Vagabond Theatre Ensemble, Sarah Massey, um, was in on a Europe trip over mm-hmm. the summer and met this guy, Nick Thomas, who's a um, who's an actor of stage and screen and comedy and um, and did a lot of movement work and um, and showed in the script. And, you know, six weeks, two months later when he read it, he, he got back to her and said he was really, really interested and really would like to work on the project. Right. And so we auditioned him over Skype. We did. It was very strange. <laughs> it was a very strange audition. Um, he actually emailed me, and the heading was something like, playing a, desk in a, playing a desk in a play. And I said, oh, okay, what's this about? Um, and so we did. We set up a Skype audition, and he was actually in, like, Belgium or something at the time? Yeah, he was, he was like, working for a family. He tutors uh, sometimes on the sides, and he was working for a family in... He was, like, in their back room at the middle of the night while we were one morning on a Sunday morning, and he was reading stuff over the computer with Lucy and also showing us these different uh, physicalities that he was working with with the desk. Um... And it was just really interesting having a conversation to him and working that way. And we had technical glitches, and mm-hmm. I've, I've never done that before. I don't know if I would do it again. Yeah. Although, it's worked out great. Yeah, he's, he's wonderful. Yeah, he's incredible. He's brought a lot to it. And and actually, one of the most important aspects of the character we've discovered is stillness, because he starts off from a, a very uh, fixed uh, wooden place, and then I guess as Hazel gives more life to him, he kind of comes to life, and uh, and eventually at the end of the play, well, oh no, I can't no, say that. Never say mind. That. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> but he becomes much more mobile, um, which is a nice contrast to the other girls who are very vivacious and phonetic and flouncing all over the stage, wearing bright red sweaters and rearranging the furniture and then here's desk very still and serene and well not always serene not always serene not always serene but a nice compliment as far as the movement on stage and storytelling yeah 
So how did the two of you come together? How did you come to, to write the show? How did, how, did, how did this all come together for... Well, Lucy and I met through a mutual friend a few years ago now. Yes. Summer of 2008, it was. <laughs> and um. then uh, <laughs> after she moved to New York uh, last January, um, she you know, was really interested in hitting the ground running and writing and auditioning and doing it all. And we actually met a year ago in March, March 2009, and she essentially pitched me the idea of a play that she had. Um, which, and then six which weeks not... to two months later when Lita read the play. <laughs> <laughs> it was totally different than the pitch that she had originally given me, yeah. um, which I always think is really interesting because one of the things she was talking about before was um, this essentially this Hazel character, but as an adult um, and as a, a pariah, essentially. Yeah. Um, and the play was much more surrealistic, m- even more um, impossible theater. Yeah. Um, and what became more interesting, I gather, from you in the writing was how did she come to be this way? What was the yeah. childhood that created this character? And that, in thinking about that, became the more interesting story for Lucy. Yeah. And Hangman School for Girls was born. Yeah. Um, Lita and I have common educational experience in the National Theatre Institute. Lita did a semester there, and um, and that is how she got to know the group of friends that I eventually got to know um, doing the Theatre Makers, which is the National Theatre Institute's summer program. And and, um, and so I'd heard of a being called Lita for about a year before I met her. And, and then... Um, and it, it was actually a really cool bath for me to sink into when I first got to New York was the, this, this extended group of friends from NTI. <laughs> 405. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, before we started the interview, for some reason, I had, you had said, you know, the 1990s. And for some reason, I heard the 1900s is what I heard. <gasps> and you immediately corrected me by saying, no, it's the era of Britney Spears, which yes. I found scary. <laughs> That the era has now been defined as the era of Britney Spears. And the Spice Girls. <laughs> well, yeah, the Spice Girls, that pop culture, I guess. Uh, Britney Spears to sort of... why, why set it in the mid-90s? Was there a specific reason for the... Well, I guess that would be a vain, vain reason if that was when I was 11. Um, <laughs> and I wrote the play, so I could do that. Um, yeah, a lot of where... It co- I mean, Lucy grew up in London... You went to a private girls' school. I did, yes. Yes, yes, yeah. you did. Um, and so it's a lot of that culture comes from her personal experience. Mm. And a lot of, um, there aren't a lot of specific references in the play, but as we've been working with it, it became clear that, you know, that is the time that we're at. Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead. It's It's an interesting period for London, I think, because... Oh, God, am I going to get in trouble for saying this? I, f- I feel like... Any- All of London will come yeah. down. <laughs> um, <laughs> we won't be let back into the country. What's that smoke I see on the horizon? Is that- oh, God. Um, I, th- I, th- I feel like... Oh, I f- when when I first moved to England, I was five, and we moved to a very rural part of England. We moved to um, Lewis, which is like a tiny, tiny town in Suff- Sussex. And... Mm. Um, and and I remember getting there, and uh, we went we went for a walk up and down the high street, and there was no McDonald's, and I started to cry. And my parents had to, like, you know, like, sit me down and be like, this is our life now, Lucy. <laughs> this is, it's different from what it was. Um, 
And uh, then we moved to London a year later in, I guess, 1991. And, um, and London, of course, is, was much more metropolitan than Lewis was. Mm -hmm. um, but it was still... I hear it is. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. On a One of those cities. It's not like you could call and ask or email, but you, you hear people and know people who went. Um, yeah, so, so when I went to school in 1996, I, I still feel like it was... It, American culture is like is is like um oh god I I don't know how to say it. I I was home for Christmas um this past Christmas and um and the sh shower was cold it was always cold and I realized that in America you're so lucky that you could just turn on the shower and expect hot water it's always there it's like you're living like in in like just a magical world where everything works exactly the way that it should and is supposed to. I feel like a lot of the time. Well, I don't. Know. I don't know. It's like, and in England, there are little common inconveniences sometimes that make you feel like, oh yes, we are reliant on. Culture. I don't know. Okay, my very very roundabout way of saying that that um, 1996 is really when girl power was taking taking off. Okay. Um, I was wondering where you were going. <laughs> yes, and this, it was like, the language barrier. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. No translate in the eventually, head. absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess, I, I guess, in my mind, that happened earlier in in America. There was this like girls had more power. They could get <laughs> hot water whenever they wanted. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, but in England, you have to beg, shivering Thanks. and naked. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so so the the element of girl power is is kind of cool of of and um and then it's very important because it's a girls' school and and um the way that girls are raised in a girls' school what what girl the way that girls are educated in a girls' school without male presences how mm -hmm. you fill those gaps, um, and how you are empowered, um, to behave and how it shapes you as different from children who go to co-ed schools. Right. Um, yeah. That's right. very far from British. So now <laughs> the show opens on March 10th and runs to the 27th. Yes. Yeah. And uh, is there a website people can go to to find out more information about this? Well, there are a few websites that we can go to to find more information, one of which is uh, fullstopcollective.org. Another is the Vagabond Theater Ensemble.com. Theater R-E. Oh, yes, Vagabond Theater Ensemble with an R-E. And um, we also have a rehearsal blog that has all of the updated information um, about, you know, who's in the show. You can um, see some publicity photos are going up soon, uh, that sort of thing. And that is hangmanschoolforgirls.blogspot.com. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thanks so much for stopping by, Lucy Gillespie and Lita Tremblay, and best of luck with the show and enjoy your hot water. Thank you. Thank Michael. you. I will. <laughs> On the boards. Last year, we had solo performing artist and writer Frank Blocker on when he was doing Southern Gothic novel here in New York. Uh, now that has been released as an audio CD as well as a script for everybody to check out. And he's back with his new one-person show, Fearless Moral Inventory, which plays through June. And uh, we got welcome Frank Blocker. Hello. Thanks for having me. And the actual title of the play or book is Southern Gothic novel, The Aberdeen, Mississippi Sex Slave Incident. So Fits make on sure you get a pencil. Really nice yeah. <laughs> it's that quickie title that hangs with you, you know. <laughs> Thought Fearless Moral Inventory is a little easier to, to, to as a catchphrase. And certainly in this town, enough people should be familiar with that phrase that uh, it should... 
It should resonate. <laughs> so, so tell us first about uh, Fearless Moral Inventory. That, uh, In fact, as we speak, you're having critics coming tonight if they can brave the snow, right? Yeah, well, tomorrow night, and yeah, there will be <laughs> oh, more snow, night. I'm sure. Uh, that seems to happen whenever I schedule a preview. A uh, snowstorm comes. Uh, well, Fearless Moral Inventory really started out as a, a, a greatest hits, as it were, because uh, I do a lot of monologue writing as an exercise or a warm-up to other plays, and a lot of these set around in drawers. And as I started putting it together and doing some sort of test marketing to it, there there did seem to be a common theme through it. And as I put them in the order that they seemed to be falling into place in, uh, it seemed to sort of uh, lend itself to that idea. Every character in the show seems to be speaking about a big change in their life or trying to take stock of themselves and those around them and how they fit in the world. And those are those are some of the things you do when you have a fearless moral inventory, and I'm not a big 12-stepper, but uh, I do admire that step very much and think that I, everyone should probably take fearless moral inventories on a regular basis and say, what have I done good? What have I done bad? How does this affect the people that I, I you know, how does this affect my world, so to speak? But uh, it's all in fun, I hope. And uh, certainly from the monologue perspective, I'm, I'm trying to really get the, the listener and the audience to focus on the individual and that individuals have their own agendas and they may be stereotypes. There may, there may be something about them that makes you laugh or whatever, but there's always a little bit of extra depth there. And there, there's always something about somebody to care about no matter how mean or <laughs> or whatever they are. I even do my own landlord on here, so uh, that, that gets a lot of reactions. Does you have your landlord come to see it? Uh, no, my landlord only sees me in court. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, Killer Joe Tennant, as I call him, and uh, that seems to uh, really resonate with the New York crowd, and, and uh, uh, many people think I'm doing their landlord, so there you go. <laughs> so what are some of the challenges when you're putting together a one-person show and, and getting ready to mount it? Uh, that you work alone a lot, and uh, it, it is your puppy. You're, you're, you're out there on your own, but then when it really comes time to getting in, uh, things done, it's it, you, you realize how many people got involved. Uh, there's quite a crew list for my show, and uh, sound designer, costumes, uh, editing, lighting designer, set designer, and even a fight choreographer. So, mm, How do you have fight choreography in a one-person show? Well, uh, <laughs> you do. And just as a point of reference, in last year's show, there was a fight between three men and a woman with a gun that I was able to get across on stage. So I think I can handle just one guy. <laughs> but I, I do lose the fight, and the fight is with a Dr. Pepper machine. So... Uh, yeah, so in the midst of all of this talking, 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 that uh, the, the 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 words stop and you get to uh, see what people do. You know, see, watch somebody react and 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 get around, get get along in the world without using the words. Uh, and the title of the piece is "The Five Stages of Death with the Dr Pepper Machine." So, <laughs> not a fight that I guess anyone could really win. <laughs> <laughs> so where's the show playing at? The show is at Stage Left Studio, which is uh, over on 438 West 37th. It's over the over the tunnel. And it's a quaint little tiny space uh, created specifically for solo shows and, and a salon type of atmosphere. So it's a small house, a small stage, uh, but the door is always open there after the after the piece is over to hang out talk a little bit to the artists and, and uh, 
get to know the space too. It's very comfortable. Uh, small and a little out of the way, but you know, there's a few things that they have that so many other theaters uh, don't have. Um, like? Uh, hot water. That um, <laughs> the biggie is bathrooms for both sexes and there's more than one seat in both of them. I mean, what theater has that <laughs> other than Broadway houses has a, the- a bathroom for each sex? Now, they do have something that a lot of small theaters don't have, or they don't have something a lot of theaters do have, and that's the smell of cat pee. I notice there's nowhere in this building, so that's kind of nice. <laughs> and no mold, so... Uh, we, we, you do tend to play some dark, dank places in this town as rent skyrockets and landlords get creepier. So. <laughs> the struggle of indie theater. So I understand that you may be uh, taking this on the road later this year? Uh, perhaps. Gonna see, well, we'll see how the reaction is. Uh, there, there was uh, certainly some requests for a companion piece when I was... Uh, that means they didn't like this one. Uh, I'm sorry? <laughs> so oh. That means they didn't like this one. That just means they didn't like this one, exactly. Uh, no. <laughs> so great... a companion piece. Well, they, they would do that. They would get very excited. They would see the press, and they would, they would, oh, this is great, and he's just one person, and it's only a box, and we can, you know, this is wonderful. Oh, it's only an hour. Oh, well, do you have anything that goes with it? So I thought, well... You know, I, I, not that that's what this was designed for, but I figure, hey, you know, if they want something to go with it, I've got 75 more minutes that I can throw on them. But, uh, and that, that, that is the, the catchphrase of this show or, or that, that's been used a lot is uh, one man, 60 characters, 75 minutes. So. And I do get them all in so. <laughs> with a few to spare. <laughs> so now you just, uh, you just recently put out an audio CD of yes. your last show. Yes. Uh, had a, had a lot of requests for that from from people who were fans of the show. There's, it's it's one that people come back to because there's a it's a fast paced and a, <clears throat> and a, a, a very thick plot, and people like to come back, hear it again, try to try to catch the little subtleties that are are are, are throughout it. I, I certainly buried plenty of little hidden treasures throughout the piece, and uh, people because it was a book and it has a book feel to it. They also wanted to be able to read. The, the play. I had many requests for reading the play and many requests for doing an audio CD so that they could share with friends or, or, or listen to again. So I just went, finished up the process of getting that done. So the book is, has been available for a few weeks out on Amazon.com and uh, so is the audio CD. Uh, both available and ready to buy. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> now, is that, can they? Do you have a website that they can go to to find out about all of this stuff? Yes. Well, the easiest would be frankblocker.com because I, I'm certainly going to have everything there. Uh, but I, I, I'm always got. I've always got my websites for the show. So there's southerngothicnovel.com. There's fearlessmoralinventory.com. <laughs> but usually frankblocker.com, and you can find your way to to, to most of them. But now, if there's any, like, regional companies or student companies out there that are looking to produce something, is Southern Gothic Novel also available? Oh, for do? them to produce if they would like to. Yeah. Well, sure. Um, <laughs> and please, you know, please, uh, I'm, I would be very interested in seeing someone else do that play. I, I never intended, you may not know that story, but I never intended to perform that piece. It was written... Strictly to strictly for the writing aspect of it, and I was loving that, and I, I was doing readings out loud as I would would work on it. But uh, I've tried to pawn that off on several actors, and 
they look at it and they seem interested, and then they won't. Then no, no, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think so. And I, I don't know if if somebody put something like that in front of me. Yeah, I'd jump on it. Uh, but I don't know. I just, I, I, I really want to see someone do it. <laughs> <laughs> I question myself sometimes when I'm looking at how does this possibly work. So I would really like to see someone do it, and they can then I can see <laughs> what it is that worked about it. So. All right, great. Well, Frank Blocker, thanks so much for stopping by. And again, Fearless Moral Inventory is Mondays through June. And uh, Southern Gothic Novel dot, 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 dot. <laughs> <laughs> Southern Gothic Novel is enough. You, you can find it. It is out now. And uh, check that out. And your website, frankblocker.com. Good luck. Well, thank you. Side. Hey, this is Marty Cooper once again on the positive side, and I'll, I'll get this over with in a hurry. If you have any opinions or any input on what I have to say today, uh, email me directly at broadwaymarty, that's one word, at aol.com. This week I'm talking about Tony's being more or less mid-season, uh, and a lot of things are starting to happen at this point. Uh, I wonder how many things that are starting to happen now will be around after June 13th, uh, but we'll see. Uh, I'm very optimistic about what's taking place right now. But in any case, mark this date well, uh, June 13th. Uh, it's the night of the Tonys at Radio City Music Hall, and it's a good thing it's at Radio City Music Hall because that stage will be crowded with a lot of people, uh, a lot of big names. Think about it. Uh, for best actor in a drama, uh, you're going to have people like uh, uh, Daniel Craig and uh, Hugh Jackman, who uh, bring an otherwise mediocre drama to the stage and lift it above its mediocrity. Um, I found the play kind of spellbinding, uh, but take away those two guys and uh, you have a good hour-long Law and Order uh, episode. And then again, you have Jude Law and Hamlet. Uh, you have, uh, you're going to have Denzel Washington coming in. Uh, you have Christopher Walken on Broadway. Uh, you'll have Norbert Leo Butts in the uh, uh, much acclaimed uh, drama with music, Enron. There's a lot of people coming up. Uh, uh, you will have James Spader in Race, uh, a play which didn't get great reviews, but he got great, great reviews. Don't forget Liev Schreiber, Liev Schreiber in, uh, in View from the Bridge. Uh, you have a lot of big names and drama. And uh, I'm usually talking about musicals. And, of course, on the best actress side in drama, you can have Laura Linney uh, in Time Stand Still, Viola Davis in, in uh, uh, Fences, uh, and uh, v Valerie Harper in Looped, uh, kind of the story of the making of the last film of Tallulah Bankhead. You have a lot of people up there. Now, musical-wise, musical-wise, we have my favorite Memphis. Memphis. Uh, you have a newcomer, Montego Glover. And, of course, you can have B.B. Newworth in The Addams Family. And Christian Knoll, who got very good notices for Ragtime. Um, I'm leaving things out, so... So if you have any ideas, please let me know. And for Best Actor, you have my favorite, Chad Kimball in Memphis. 
uh, but you'll also have Nathan Lane, who never doesn't get nominated. I don't know if that's correct, um, uh, correct English. Uh, you have the two gentlemen, Kelsey Grama and Douglas Hodge in La Cage au Fall. Um, the four guys doing uh, the Million Dollar Quartet, an unknown quantity. Cheyenne Jackson, who, who, who did himself proud in Finian's Rainbow. Uh, you have a big field here. Um, in any case, I wouldn't want to have to vote this year on, on the Tony Awards. In this year of crowded possibilities, you still only have two musicals with, with uh, uh, original scores, and that'll be The Addams Family and Memphis. In this year of many, many possibilities, you only have two that will be up for best score unless, unless they nominate Green Day for the score of American Idiot, which is another musical that will be up for best musical. Oh, I totally forgot Little Night Music with Catherine Zeta-Jones. Of course, she's going to be nominated. And Angela Lansbury, who will get her sixth or seventh nomination, I'm not sure. I'm losing count here. Um, so it's going to be a very crowded field. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to see what they do with it. Uh, and one other thing, I left one person out. Uh, he was actually one of the stars of Spring Awakening, uh, John Gallagher Jr., who will be the star of American Idiot. So as you see, I've already left people out. If you have any suggestions, please let me know. I'm rambling on a little much, as I usually do. Uh, next week, uh, next session, I'm going to talk about uh, Mr. Sondheim as his 80th birthday is coming up. And uh, at least my life, since I started going to theater, has been surrounded by his work. Uh, I'm going to do a little shrine, so to speak, for Mr. Sondheim. In any case, uh, this is Marty Cooper once again saying, stay on the positive side and don't ramble on like I've just done. Curtain call. Well, that wraps up this week's episode of Broadway Bullet. We'll be back on the 18th. Again, we're the first and third Thursday of the month. Remember, you can pick up James Barber's single, Walk With Me, from iTunes or Amazon, and all proceeds will go to Haiti Relief. Uh, so tell everybody about it. Help spread the word. And thanks for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo. The hairs went up on the back of my neck. The Broadway Bullet! It was a moment. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere. 
but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc., to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.